Welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Dr. Michael Gervais, by trade and training, a high-performance psychologist. And welcome to another Ask Me Anything. I really love engaging with our community and getting the chance to answer some of your questions. The deep thought and the curiosity, the authenticity, and the vulnerability that go into these questions being asked is noted and it's appreciated. If you'd like to submit a question for future episodes, you can email info at findingmastery.net or you can leave your questions in the comment section on YouTube. Now, with the ambiguity in the world and the headwinds that we are facing, psychology could not be more important right now. If you want to have a high-performing life, you need psychological skills and practices that are fundamentally integrated into your life. I hope that this format can be a starting point for you to explore some of the psychological concepts and perhaps think about things in a slightly different way. But creating real change in your life, that takes a deep commitment to doing the work, to know yourself, and to train your mind. If you are finding value in this format, but want a deeper level of actionable training on some of the skills that we discuss, I really want to encourage you to check out our online psychological training course where we've pulled together the best practices that interweave high-performance psychology and well-being. We walk through 16 essential principles and skills for you to train your mind so that you can consistently perform toward the upper edges of your capabilities. And as a thank you for tuning into this AMA, you'll receive $50 off when you enroll in the Finding Your Best course. If you're interested in signing up for the course, just head to findingmastery.net slash course and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. So again, a sincere thank you for tuning in. And with that, let's get right to your questions. Travis writes, I've recently listened to your podcast with David Goggins and Dr. Mark Brackett. Though I get these two are serving very different purposes in their lives, I cannot but help but think about the differences between the Goggins' approach to feelings and Dr. Brackett's approach to emotional intelligence. What are the similarities you see between the two of them? Similarities? Okay. It's a cool question because Goggins, you know, kind of oversimplify Goggins', Goggins approach, which is like stuff it down, do it, you know, don't whine, don't complain, no excuses, grind it out, you know, go do the freaking thing, deal with your emotions later, you know, or when you start to feel something that's going to get in your way, stuff it down, <laughs> you know, so, you know, there's a time and place maybe for that. I don't resonate with it. You know, I don't, I don't want to be muted in my emotional experience in life. And the reason I'm going to say that is because Early in my life, if, you, if we oversimplify emotions and we just pick four of them really quickly, there's, there's emotion of anger, there's happiness, there's sadness and fear. And if you just think about those for just a moment, and there's a wider range, but this is kind of like a very basic rudimentary approach, is that early in my life as a young adolescent male, I was permitted to do kind of the almost all of the anger scale. But when I would be too angry, like there's a rage, that wasn't cool. So if the scale one to 10 and 10 being rage, I had to back that down to like, eh, no more than like say a seven, okay? On the happy scale, I could do a little bit of happy. I could do a one, two, three, but too much happy. It was like, I wasn't serious. I was one of them that's like kind of um, airy, you know, like up in the clouds and not dealing with reality. And like, there's a softness that's not okay. So I learned that young. On the sadness, no, 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 no. No, you don't do sadness. Stuff that down, right? A little bit of happiness, all of anger, no sadness, and then fear. What are you talking about? Stuff that down. You don't do fear. So, and I don't think I'm that different than many people, certainly, you know, in the Western culture, like that would be almost like a pro-social way that you would raise a young boy. And so, and I'm not speaking to my parents, I'm speaking to like the community around me that would give me a certain clue about how to deal with emotions. So there's this limited range that I had as a young person. 
a little bit of happiness, plenty of anger, nothing else. So when Goggins says, toughen up, harden up, I'm like, I know that. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go the distance he's going. I'm not interested. So, so Goggins, love you. I really love the conversation we had. And you opened up a real vibe, you know, about doing hard things. For me, I want to do the hard things in an enduring way in my life, but have wide range. I want to quickly work with emotions. I want to be incredibly proficient with how I metabolize and express and work with my emotions. Because to me, that feels much larger, much freer. It's like the I want the container of my life, especially my emotional life, to be as big as it possibly can so that I don't feel constricted in any way. And so the, the other counter approach is like have great awareness of your emotions. And this is, you know, the emotional intelligence work is be able to name them, you know, be able to uh, have a way of working with them and have some speed with the way you work with it. And if you can do that for yourself and you can do that with other people, now you've created relationships with yourself and others that are, you're working with speed, with range in a dynamic way to be able to do hard things. And I'm far more interested in that approach. And I do, I, I, but I appreciate people that are like, you know, shut the fuck up and do the work and I don't want to hear from it. Like grind it out. Like I can appreciate that. I don't think it's healthy. It's not what I want to teach, you know, my son. It is, but there are times as an adult where it's like, you got to figure out how to navigate this because there's lots of emotions that are in place here. For instance, there, I'm thinking right now of a world-class surfer. He's a big wave surfer. He's literally one of the three best in the world that is surfing giants. And I'm talking 80 to 100 foot. You look at these things and you feel the earth around you shake as the wave crashes. And no reasonable person wants to be in that situation. But this gentleman I'm thinking of is so skilled that he's purposely putting him in that place. And there's a moment that most of the great big wave surfers talk about is that they understand that they're purposely putting themselves in the most dangerous position they can be in, the most critical, the highest stakes environment, because that is required to be able to do the thing that they've committed to doing. And if they hesitate in that moment, if they're over flooded with emotions or don't have a way to work with the emotions, fear that they're feeling, that they miss it. So to be able to work with emotions well when the external demands are real and intense and scary, you have to know how to work with them in less intense emotions. And this is why one of the practices of mindfulness and meditation are so important. You know, it's like sit on a pillow and know how to deal with your emotions is far easier and still very hard than to be able to try to manage your emotions when it's quote unquote on. So, you know, pick your style. I'm more interested in range, and I think most people in our community vibe with that a bit too. And at the same time, I love you, Goggins. Like, you know, thank you for waking hard work up for so many people. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high-quality, all-natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their Hydrate or Die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash finding mastery and enter the code finding mastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubs naturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash finding mastery 
with the code Finding Mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction (ED), hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash finding mastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash finding mastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Okay, we have a question from a listener in Kenya. What are the most interesting or unexpected ways you've seen leadership evolve over the past two to three years? Oh, that's a cool question. Because over the last couple of years, leadership has changed a lot now. And the old model of like the industrial psychological model, which is show up, do your job, bang a hole into a piece of metal or whatever it might be. And, you know, it, it's, it's fortunate that you're here doing this job because this is how you're taking care of your family. But listen, I don't want to really hear it. Well, that, <laughs> the hangover from that is still seeping into modern work. And our workforce right now is exhausted. And it's exhausted not because the demands are so intense. It's We're exhausted because there hasn't been a shift from extraction to unlocking. And the extraction model is like, listen, show up, do your job, and be lucky that you're here. And I'm going to pay you X dollars an hour, and I'm going to pull everything you got because this machine needs to be efficient. And if it's not efficient, you don't get to be here. Okay. The unlocking model is this idea that there's tremendous untapped resources inside of humans. And the modern leader is moving from like what I, the narrative I just expressed to how can I create the conditions for somebody to unlock the potential within? And those conditions are external conditions and internal conditions. So how can I invest in the people that have agreed to go on a shared mission together? How can I invest in their psychology? Those are the internal. And then the external is how do I create the external conditions where people can make decisions, move with uh, autonomy and agility, where they know the power that they hold, they're trusted. How, how do we create those environments to move with speed and accuracy and for people to have the required psychological skills to flourish? That's what's happening right now. And that's elite sport is like 10 years ahead. And so about 10 years ago, this is exactly what started happening across world sport is great coaches are innovators and they're looking at the science and they're looking at kind of what's coming down the pipe for human performance. And like, finally, like sports psychology is now more concrete and it's not weird because we're the, 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 the people before me in the field worked their asses off to take great ideas into theory, into the laboratory, to have very concrete applied mechanisms that can hold up inside of working, um, working environments, working environments of performance. So we're here, and sport has been here for a while now. And so now big, big business is going, oh, wait, hold on. How, how are you doing that? Oh, it's not extraction? Well, there's always still some of that. You know, like there's, there is a ruthlessness 
in big in big sport for sure. But there is an over rotation. There's an a deep appreciation for the necessary skills for psychology to be invested. And that's what's really, so great leaders right now are making that pivot from extraction to unlocking, and they are investing in best practices in psychology to help people flourish. And flourishing, I'll be very concrete, is this unique intersection between the psychology of well-being and the psychology of high performance. So it's that intersection, stitching those two together, that is a massive unlock in business. And let's also be clear that the business environment is where we spend most of our time. It's like the perfect delivery mechanism to change the world at scale, is to meet them where they sweat and where adults sweat is in business. And so if we can meet them there and create conditions, internal and external conditions for human flourishing, we just might change the world. And if we can do that, human potential is not yet even close to being revealed. And if we can level up the psychological skills to meet the demands of the external world, we got a shot. Because right now, humanity, I think we're suffering. I don't think we're just struggling. I think we're suffering. We're not even close to thriving. Anthony asks, knowing you work with some of the most respected leaders across sports and business, what topics are keeping you up late, interested and curious to dig into with your team? It's a good question, Anthony. The things that keep me up late at night are making sure that I am rock solid in two ways. Because these world-class business leaders and coaches are displaying so much trust and I feel an incredible responsibility to meet that trust. And so the two ways that that I think about a lot is, is my container vast enough to be able to stand fully grounded and present when other people's emotional experience is radically intense? Can I, have I done enough of my internal work to reveal universal wisdoms and have it not just be something I read, but something that I, I fully have metabolized? So there's a depth and a, and a width that I'm trying to make sure that is true. And so that, that's one. And the second thing that keeps me up is, um, based on that trust, is that making sure that the people that, um, that are providing that trust, that they are flourishing as well. And that means people in the Finding Mastery team, and that means you know people... Um, in the companies that we work with, and that not only are they solving the business problems, not only am I showing up in a way that is of real service and, and with depth and breadth, but also is that are they as an individual thriving? So those are the things that I start to pay a lot of attention to. And the, the things that um, are less important, I think, to that, but our parallel path is there's a bigger play that's happening. And I'm not on the front lines of this, but I feel a connection and responsibility to it is that I was consulting with a, one of the large consulting firms and it was a, a leadership team in, inside of one of these large firms. And they said, okay, we understand your position. We agree with the position of you helping enterprise companies unlock human potential. Totally. We are in line with it. However, we are being told by other companies, not to be named, but we are being told by other companies that have a fundamentally different philosophy. And that philosophy is next person up. We've got more people than we know what to do with, and we are not trying to create a condition of flourishing. We are going to win this war through business. We are going to win the global war through business. It's like, ooh. Wait a minute, hold on. So some of the large companies right now are way more powerful than governments are. The geopolitical, multifaceted you know, influence that big business has some, in many respects um, is really intense. And so there is a war inside of a war that's taking place that most of us are not familiar with. And the, the bet is, 
Are you going to invest your money and time and resources to unlock potential? Or are you going to invest in outcomes at any means necessary almost? And so in the short run, those that bet on outcomes are probably going to be ahead. But we know that it's not the right thing to do, right? And is it sustainable? It doesn't seem that way to me. So this is the thing underneath the thing. I'm not on the front lines of it, but I am helping companies lay a bet on unlocking. And there are other companies that are helping those enterprise companies lay a bet on pure outcome. And so can we, can we, can we strike that right balance between human flourishing and human thriving and the business thriving? If we do that, we, we end up changing the world in meaningful ways. I'm betting on it. I've seen it in sport. I've seen it play out, you know, gold medals, world championships. I've seen it. It's doable. I think it's harder, but it's also quote unquote more right. And so um, those are a couple ways, a couple things that I think about the, you know, what keeps me up at night. I've seen it on the world stage with some of the most herald championships. Like I, this is how we worked at the Seattle Seahawks when we won the Super Bowl. It was like relationship-based to help people flourish, and we won the whole thing. It can happen. I've seen it with Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, one of the most significant companies on the planet right now, lead with, quote-unquote, empathy and a mindset of growth and to have a very clear understanding that it is a purpose-driven, people-centered way to do business, and it's working. I've seen it on the Olympic stage where I've seen the tragedy of this on the Olympic stage. I'll start with that story is that there was a, a gal that I work with that um, she was on the podium, national anthem. She won the gold medal. Tears were rolling down her, her face. And the whole world thought that like, what a moment, what an amazing moment. She did it. And she walked off the podium. And the first thing that she said to me was, I'm still miserable. She chased the outcome at all costs. And then when the outcome happened, there's still an emptiness and a hollowness. So I've seen that part of it too. And at the Olympic stage, I've seen people that are, are like ear to ear grinning because they're completely whole and there's an integrity about themselves, whether they win or don't win. And I've seen both winning and not winning with that experience. So it's there. The question is, where do you personally lay your bet? Where do I lay my bet? And I'm clear where I'm laying mine. And, I, you know, but it has to be consistent. It has to be world-class because there is a, there's a war that's taking place. Dr. Tim asks, what comes first, the inner work of the individual human or the development of the environment, aka the culture? Well, that's a cool question. What comes first, you know, helping the person have the inner skills or shaping the culture? Of course, the best answer is a yes and. Like, wherever the natural momentum is, start there, you know? And however, I would say flat out, my approach traditionally is to start in places that the person has ultimate control over. So you want to be able to influence the environment and set up those conditions, but it's multifaceted and it takes a little bit more time. So knowing that there's a time horizon on being able to shape an environment in an optimized way, a healthy way to support flourishing and to have that right tension and the right systems in place to help people navigate their inner life aligns with the mission of the company. That's cool. It's, it's powerful. It's a big chunk of work. But the inside out work is actionable right now. And so for me, when I think about the greatest lever that we can have is to create change now. And so it is available to you, to me, to Dr. Tim right now to influence the way that we think, the way that we breathe, the way that we work with emotions, the way we frame experiences, the sophistication in our awareness and the sophistication in our recovery. Like we can do that right now with a whole set of practices. And then we can share those best practices with other people, create a small community that is holding each other to those standards and accountable to doing the internal work. Because people think, you know, so much that like I, I read a good psychology book or I listened to a, you know, my minister or preacher or, or a, you know, 
my parents or whatever it is that are wise. And I get it. I get my psychology. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about doing the work. If you go into a gym and you do physical training and you're fit, and which means that, you know, your cardiovascular can hand, handle some stuff. You can, you have enough strength to be able to listen, lift what you need to lift. And you've got that right mobility, flexibility to, to be supple. And you're doing that work for it. And then you stop doing the work. How long does it take? A couple of weeks where you're like, wow, what has happened to my body? Like, it's not like it falls off a cliff, but that fine-tuned switched on capacity is, is now compromised. And that's because you're doing the work and then you stop doing the work. Okay, psychology is the same way. Do the work. And that's not read another book. That sit your ass on a pillow and like train refocusing and train awareness through a, a mindfulness practice. It's being very clear about the breathing strategies that, that work for downregulation and increasing capacity. It's being very disciplined about how you speak with yourself, non-critically, but having a discipline about it and having a North Star about how you want to speak to yourself, how you want to really. So it's training. And the training I'm talking about is like, I mean, if we start with 12 minutes a day, that's pretty good. Call that a minimal effective dose. It's okay. If you went to the gym for 12 minutes a day, probably not enough. So listen, if you start at 12 minutes or 20 minutes a day, somewhere in that range of doing internal based work, that has an incredibly powerful lever. And when you do it with other people, that lever can change any environment before you make those changes. If you can get a critical mass of people that are highly aware, they're working from the inside out, that in and of itself will change an environment. So that's why I place you know, the, the, the fulcrum for leverage. Great. I am the CEO of a startup tech company. My son was born with a life-threatening condition that requires attention. When things go into crisis mode, I still have a business to run and bills to pay. How do I think clearly when things go sideways? It's a good question because the essence that if, if Mark was with us, what I would say, I would ask him a question like, Mark, what kind of life do you want to live? And then Mark would have a response about it. And then from that, we would build what, would, what I would consider a plan or a program. So for me to just answer out of context, it's hard, right? Because each of us, we have a way that we want to live. And it's not for somebody else to say, oh, well, if you had these couple skills in place, then that's where you should focus on. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with our co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo's doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations they call them Apollo vibes, that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real-world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo, Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery, or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep 
is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. Now, when you add love to the piece and family members and really caring for people, one of the key tensions is how do I spend my time? Because to, to birth a business takes time and energy and deep commitment, focus and a team and hydrating and watering those relationships in meaningful ways. And to also do that at home means that we have to be great at relationships. So the first relationship begins with himself, with Mark. Like I said, who does he want to become? How does that feel? Like, what's that unique psychological style? Okay, so then we work backwards from there and we say, what are the capabilities to be able to make that true more often? To have a first a relationship with oneself so that we can have deep and meaningful relationships with others and the activities that we're engaging in. All right, so to pull this down from the esoteric into the concrete, deep focus. That's where this comes from deep focus. The present moment is the entry point in for high performance. And let's say it's high performing parenting. It sounds weird, but it means being a, your very best parent. So the present moment is the entryway in. It's also the entryway in for making critical, creative, uh, time-sensitive decisions. So high performance in the work context. It's all the, also the place, the present moment is where wisdom is revealed. It's where you understand the deep and rich nuances of what it means to be a thriving human at one level. So spending time in the present moment will be the unlock. And if you add just a bit of contour to the way that you are fully present with your children, and you add that curiosity meets beginner's mind of what it must be like, for that person, for that little eight-year-old or that little mind that's trying to figure things out and looking at the hero of dad and trying to figure out, you know, how this world works and how to create safety within themselves. And you can just have that, like, what is it like for them? It strips us out of our narrative that we need to get somewhere else or do something else. And if you have the skill to focus deeply in the present moment, this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment again, and by the way, that's trainable. All of What I'm talking about is fully trainable when it comes to deep focus. If you have that capability and you add the contour of what is it must, what must it be like for this person? They feel seen, they feel understood. And when that happens at home and it happens at work, people feel full. They feel like they matter. They are connected to something that they want to be connected to. And that's a long way of saying, Who do you want to become? Double down on relationships. Double click there on deep focus and add a unique contour about what it must be like for the person that you're having the conversation with. Concept of bringing your whole self to work. There's a lot of different ways you can interpret that. You know, do we bring all our noise and all our, you know, domestic issues into our workplace? And, or does that mean something different? Like, what does that mean to you? This idea that I need to be one way at work and one way at home is antiquated. I mean, that's gone the way of the dodo. However, there are conditions for us that we don't feel like we can be fully ourselves, let's say at work. And there's a concept of two selves, you know, that you've got to play a certain way to be 
part of that group. Making a commitment to be authentically you, independent of environmental conditions, is awesome. And it's hard. So the idea of bringing your whole self to work, there's something deeply aspirational about it and then also something wildly inappropriate about it. And so there's levels to it. You know, there's a sophistication to know what parts of me to bring forward. Meaning like, let's say I have a fight with my wife and like, or like uh, it's something that's really troubling me in, in, in my home life. Do I, do I bring that into the meeting? Probably not. But if, do I have people that are in my work community and do I have relationships with them where I can lean on them and trust them? That, that feels more appropriate than like kind of airing out all the stuff that's really difficult. But I'm not suggesting in this that, that you, you're faking your way through the work environment. So the whole self for me is really about making a radical commitment to know who you are and then knowing that you're a work in progress and knowing that mistakes are part of it and knowing that trauma and heartache and all of that is part of the human experience. And then to create the right relationships to support all of you. Some of those relationships are at work and some of those relationships are outside of work. But the first order whole self is really a really it's a powerful thought. Like, I'm not even sure I know how to articulate who my whole self is. I feel like I'm multidimensional. Like certain environments, I can be a certain way. In other environments, it accesses a different part of me, but it's still me. So what I'm saying is I'm tempering down that idea of like, bring your drama into work. And I'm also opening up the idea that I need to be a certain way to be approved by others and that's how I should show up. So there is a balance in here a bit. And then also if you, I think if we can appreciate like, I can be intense, I can be silly, I can be a, a bit of a mess, I can be a hard ass, I can be soft and loving, like I've got all of those dimensions and it's knowing which part of me to bring into the environment that honors the relationship and honors the shared mission that we're on. That's what a whole self feels like to me, is that I have range because of the, the self-discovery work, and then I can, I can figure out which parts best suit the relationship and the shared mission that we're, you know, we've agreed to go on together. Paul gets points for honesty with this question. He writes, Mike, I do not know why, but I find myself constantly finding flaws in people. And by people, I'm referring to my coworkers who are actually great people. I find myself doing it often with my next door neighbors, and they're kind and amazing people. For some reason, there's this voice in my head that is constantly knocking people down in my mind. Can, do you have any explanation for that? <laughs> That's good. Okay, Paul, I wonder what you're thinking about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better answer this question, yeah, right? right? Yeah, so, okay, so let's, let's just kind of call it what it is. It's critique, judgment. And the lenses that we hold about behaviors for ourselves and our others are usually the same. So when we're really hard on ourselves, it's like we've got these dark tinted glasses on, you know, when we look at ourselves. Rarely do we take those dark tint off and put like rose colored on for other people. We might have different shades, but it's still dark and critical, let's say. And, and the opposite can be true too. If like you see yourself like in loving, kind ways and it's like, it's great to be in your own spirit and mind and body. Like it's awesome. Like you're a great coach to yourself and you really have your back. And you know, that, that's how we end up in speaking or thinking about other people as well. So what we're talking about is critical judgment or critique and judgment. It's actually complicated because self-critique will help you get good at something. That's not good enough. Damn it. Like, Let's dig in. If we can do better. Let's go. Come on. I got this. You know, like that kind of like, what are you doing with your life, Mike? You know, that, that type of inner critic voice will get anybody good, but it doesn't take us to the place that we really want. It, it cannot take us to a place of flourishing, th true thriving. And if we're practicing getting good at something and we're using this tool, self-critique and judgment, what we end up doing is adopting that same strategy on others. Okay, so 
This is one way of thinking about critique. It's a tool that serves us to get good. It will never lead to flourishing unless you let go of that tool for a different tool. And when you do that for yourself, you will critique others less because you're not practiced at it. So what you focus on grows. What you practice grows. And if you're practicing critique of others, well, you're probably doing that because you've done it to yourself a lot. If you're practicing self-critique, you're probably going to turn that same thing on others. Again, what you practice grows. Warren asked, how do you wor work with athletes worried about getting injured and coaches who worry about their star player getting injured? Okay, Lauren, anxiety kind of is this bed of thinking that can sit underneath all of us. And in the world of athletics, we call it hearing footsteps. And I'll, I'll share a story with you. So I was working with a, um, an NBA athlete. He was really solid. Like he was a starter. He wasn't one of the celebrity stars in the league, but he was a solid starter, reliable contributor. And he went up for a dunk and got clipped. And, you know, so he's in a, I don't know, six foot free fall and he snaps his wrist and his elbow and it, teammates first row bench was like, Oh my God. It was like a traumatic moment for people that, that watched it. Of course it was traumatic for him too. So he physically healed and his wrist had all the evidence and his elbow had all of the evidence that he was stronger physically. But each time he would go up for a layup, this is when we met, right? I didn't know him at the time when he injured himself. But subsequently, when he would go up for just a layup, not even a dunk as matching when he got hurt, but when he'd go up for a layup, he would crouch up, like bracing himself for an impact. And even when he would start, like his couple steps to go up for the, for, uh, the rim, he would say, go strong. Right, because he knew that he needed to set his mind to go up because he had this protective mechanism that was embedded. And he would go up and still he would have this crowded protective body posture. And of course he's not gonna be able to do his thing when he's operating that way. And until you figure out how the, the early traumas in your life, and you don't have to do a deep dive, but a dive, what are the tripwires that lead you to over-worry? What are the tripwires that lead you to have a posture of protection when really what you want is to be able to go up to the ball or go up to the rim and be free and slap the board like you used to or, or dunk it you know, freely? And so until you understand the tripwires for it, it's very hard to just all of a sudden get free. And for those of us who are coaching others and we're worried about injury, there's an anxiety that sits underneath that's probably related to the trauma that you had about getting hurt. And then you lay that trauma on the potential future traumatized person, the athlete or whatever. And so I think the work is to say, do your own work first to see where that comes from. What are your tripwires? Like, why would you have this type of thinking uh, for somebody else? And just answering the why actually is not enough because logically you can say, well, because if I, if these athletes get hurt, it could, you know, ruin their career. It could set them back. It could be bad for teammates, blah, blah, blah. There's all types of logical reasons that you could answer it. And that's why you have to do two parts, like the emotional part, what's the tripwire, and then fill in um, a better solution moving forward on how you want to support your people to really go for it. Because that's, as a coach, that's our job. Our job is to see the potential of others, to calibrate what we believe is possible with them, and then to develop a strategy that will support that, like an uncommonly, relentlessly focused commitment to help that vision that we've calibrated on of what's possible be as close to a reality as we can today and tomorrow and the next day, as long as we can do it together. And if we've got this other thing that's embedded in there, which is I'm really afraid that you're going to get hurt. And that's actually a bigger driver or larger narrative than the risk and vulnerability required to stretch to that next version of yourself. Well, we play it safe. We play it small. We create conditions for people to be okay, to make it through practice. But we never get to the 
edges that are required for radical growth. And so there's a, a book that a book that was like 100 pages in, maybe 150 pages in that was never published. And one of the titles was called Making a Case for Broken Bones. And it was based on that story, but it was really this 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 chapter was for parents to say, if you want your kids to go high in life, a tree metaphor holds up well. Sometimes we fall out of trees. Sometimes we make break bones. That's not the worst thing that's going to happen to your kid, you know? And so, but that is hard. When I look at my son, he's climbing, he's shaking, and he's looking down. He's like, Dad, am I okay? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but inside, I'm like, you know, I don't say it, but if you fall, this could be really bad for you. <laughs> you know, like having those moments where we are fundamentally commitment to getting to the edge as opposed to fundamentally commitment, fundamentally committed to playing it safe. I think there's a sophistication to know when and how to do that. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code Finding Mastery at checkout. Again, that's aquatrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Peter asks, what's the best way to listen so people want to talk? I'm specifically, specifically asking about my 15-year-old son, but as a general practice, what do you recommend? Okay, that's good. I mean, the first order of business is like a 15-year-old son. It's hard. It's just hard to get stuff out of them because... You know, my, my son is 14. I say, how's your day today? Good. You know, it's classic, right? So 
it's not necessarily listening, which I'll, I'll touch on that. I think it's creating thought stems, creating scenarios that are a little bit more concrete. So as a, an on-ramp feels um, wide and it's also got some guardrails. Like, here's a question uh, that I asked my son. Um, what was the hardest part of your day? Or what was the thing that challenged you the most? Or, hey, what, what mistakes did you get to make today? Or um, who'd you laugh you know, with the most today? Or um, you know, what are the things that scared you today? So it's, it, there's like a little bit of a, a guardrail in there because when you ask a young mind, how was your day? It's almost like it's too big. It's like me looking at a white piece of paper wanting to write something you know, coming from my heart that's really deep and I just look at it and I'm like, I have nothing to say. <laughs> right? So, it, it, but if, if somebody were to say like, why don't you start off with a story that, you know, made you laugh? Oh yeah. Okay. So I can get into that. So part of it is, is the art of a thought stem. It's like a half sentence or um, a sentence that gives them some direction that they can explore. And that doesn't mean they're going to do it, you know? 14-year-old kid that jumps in the car after a long day or 15-year-old kid that jumps in the car after a long day, you know, that kid's probably pretty tired. Last thing he really wants to do is reminisce with dad, you know, about like all of the day because, you know, they work pretty damn hard. And so that's one. Okay. And I'll, I'll stop there. And the second part of that though is Socratic questioning is to keep drilling under. So when they, whatever they give you, they say, um, good. You say, oh, what parts were good? So you just keep drilling under, keep drilling under in a way that you, you just keep pulling on it. And without frustration, without um, having a sense of intolerance for it or whatever, like you just keep pulling on the thread. Like, oh, how was that? And how was that? Oh, tell me more about that. Oh, that's interesting. And then when my son says good, I just laugh and he knows, and it's kind of a game and he knows there's a follow-on that's going to, you know, okay. So then the other part is on listening. All you do is just listen. Like it's just creating space and you're just trying to understand what is it like to be this person? And when I listen, I am not listening to the words that they're sharing. I'm listening for why they chose those words of all the words they could choose. I'm trying to think like why those words? And then more importantly, that kind of fades away quickly for me. But I'm going right underneath that to see if I can understand the emotion that they're working from. So this drives my wife nuts, is that I'm listening, but I'm really trying to understand the feeling. And so I, I will forget the narrative that she's talking about far quicker than the tone and the contour of the emotion. And so I think the, the key to listening well is creating space to do exactly that, to listen. Be less interested in the words, but more interested in why they chose those words, and even more interested in the emotion that comes, um, that they're conveying through the words. I actually think listening is your superpower. And I've, I've seen you not just listen to the feeling, but I've seen you really kind of capture somebody's experience and feed it back to them in a way where they feel completely seen and heard, and it, um, in a way that moves them. Yeah, isn't it a cool experience when, as the listener, you're having this like, oh, that and this, and, and, and like there's all this stuff happening, and then all of a sudden it just kind of unfolds as you're, as you're sharing it. And then to see another person go, whew, how'd you know that? And it's like, oh, I was just listening, <laughs> right? You've actually said a lot. <laughs> and the, again, it's not the words, it's why those words were chosen. And then it's the feeling that's conveyed with it. And then, um, thank you for the comment. And then to your point though, what decades of training and psychology allows us to do is have frameworks that we're working from as well. And everyone thinks like, oh, you're diagnosing? No, it's not. You gotta pay a lot of money because it takes a lot of time to diagnose somebody really, unless they're flat out obvious, you know, but, but it's all these beautiful frameworks and scientific theories that are helping me map an architecture of how this person is experiencing their life. How do you put a high performance mindset lens on forgiveness? 
when something's been done to you, wrongfully done to you, like how do you let go of it? Like how do you, what mindset skills do you use to process? First order of business is that none of us are getting through this life without trauma, big trauma or little trauma. So we, we all have an understanding of what it feels like to be deeply hurt, to be scared in a way that reorganizes how we think about ourselves or other people, to be in life-threatening or seemingly life-threatening experiences that fundamentally reshape how we feel in a present moment. And when there is a perpetrator, when there is somebody that is a bad actor, when there is somebody that maliciously wanted to harm you, as opposed to somebody that did something and there was a consequential wake of hurt that took place. So let's take the, the bad actor first, the person who is narcissistic, sociopathic, um, or maybe less down of intensity is really just selfish, you know, and doesn't have the, the care, the wherewithal, the ability to understand, you know, uh, the impact. Okay, so let's go from the traumatic standpoint first, is that um, forgiving is one thing, and then putting yourself in a situation to be re-traumatized is another. So let's start with the forgiveness. The forgiveness is not for that person. The forgiveness is for you. And that sounds easy. It sounds like, oh, I've heard that before. But when we take a look at the neurochemistry involved in protecting oneself, and we look at the neurochemistry involved in frustration, anger, and contempt, it's pretty toxic. You know, it's meant for instantaneous protection, and it's not sustainable. So the, the drain on my system when I am using anger to protect myself, because like forgiveness is very different than, than anger, right? And so when I'm using some sort of emotional set of tools, whether it's high fear or anger to protect myself, it's like there's a big hole in the bottom of the bucket. You know, each day we fill up our bucket with nutrition and sleep and the exercise and meditation and, 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 right? And then we go throughout our day and just the stressors of the day, there's a drain but this just widens that bucket. So then now we've got our energy resources ripping through the bucket. So it's not sustainable because the cost is so high. And that's when I say it's for you. I'm thinking about it from a neurochemistry, neurochemistry biological perspective. You can also add a spiritual layer to it, you know, some sort of karmic, some sort of um, deeper way of organizing how you relate to other people but I just wanna hit the first one first. So it's not for the other person, but forgiveness does not mean that you put yourself back into harm's way. And so let's say that, let's say that um, you're in an abusive relationship and there's a mending that takes place. So there's an abuse that takes place and then there's a mending, which it's called the honeymoon and like, it's quite amazing, actually, for most people. And this, there's a circular nature to the cycle of abuse. There's an incident, there's a honeymoon phase, and then there's great tension leading up to the next moment of abuse. So in that, re, in that repair moment, which is relatively surface, and it's really just to meet the needs of the abuser so that the, the victim doesn't go away again, or doesn't go away, that... In that moment, there's a temptation to want to forgive because you see something special in the person. You see something that you fell in love with early on, but the behavior doesn't match it. And you say, okay, well, I can give a pass. Like we all make mistakes and da, 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 da. But if that person says, I am sorry, I will never do this again. And it's like, oh, that feels right. But they don't do any work around it. They don't, they don't go to their woodshed to change the way they think, to change the way that they work with their emotions, that's just going to happen again. So, so forgiveness happens for you. Forgiveness and putting yourself in the same situation needs to have a second mechanism. 
And that second mechanism is to make sure that the other person who has either accidentally or purposely harmed you is taking accountability and responsibility to change the way that they use their mind and the way that they work with their emotions so that they never put you in that harm's way again. So I think that that's a lot of work that goes into that. And people say, well, I can forgive but not forget. What they're saying is, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way again. Like, I'm not going to fully trust you. The forgiveness is for you. And also, when you forgive somebody else, there's a deeper layer here that I want to talk about, is that we're all interrelated. Like, we're in ways we don't even really understand. And so if we are holding hatred and contempt for other people for our own protection, there's a freeing mechanism that happens when we can see how we can let go of that as long as we can take care of ourselves. So there's a great psychological, emotional freeing that happens when you're like, you know what? I can forgive because I know how to take care of me. Marcy asks, focus, can you have too much? How does one loosen their focus in a healthy way so it's not to hold on to things too tightly? Okay. So there's two parts. Focus in and of itself doesn't mean hold on to. So I'll talk through the quadrants of focus, and this is based on some research by Robert Nidefer, which is foundational for me. So yes, you can have too much focus. You can have too much narrow focus. So the quadrants are, if you imagine uh, in your head right now that there's a horizontal axis and it's between broad and narrow, and there's a vertical axis, which is between um, external and internal. And so when you have too much narrow focus, whether it's an internal narrow focus, focusing on yourself or one aspect of yourself, or it's too much of an external narrow focus, which is just locking in on the, you know, the something, whatever kind of, usually it's a threat, right? It, of course, that, that type of narrow focus is all consuming and we miss other parts of life. We can also hyper-focus in certain situations like playing a video game or a great conversation with somebody, or if we're in a scary environment or a fear-based fear environment that, you know, to survive through that, we just have to narrow focus. So narrow focusing is, um, it's really important. And at the same time, um, most people don't struggle here. Most people struggle with, um, not having a discipline of narrow focus. So their mind quickly wanders to the next thing. So that's just a model for focus. The holding on, I'm not sure how that relates to focus. Like, is that I'm focused on chasing a goal? And so they're using that word for like a commitment or a determination or something. And so if the, if the thought is like, if I'm over-focusing on, replace the word, if I am too resilient, or I'm too I have too much perseverance, or I'm overcommitted to something. How do I let go of doing that? There's a concept called the dip, and uh, there's lots of cartoons around this. But most people do quit at some point, something that's not working out. And I'm I'm making like a, a U um, uh, with my finger here. Is that so? You start something, you get a little progress, the kind of the edge goes up and then it gets harder and there's a dip and it goes down, 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 down. And then most people drop around the bottom of the dip. But what's required to get to the next level of why you started this mission that you're on to get to that next kind of space is that you've got to go through this upward grind, but you're starting now at a new bottom, if you will. Most people stop at the bottom, they quit at the bottom. And I'm using that word provocatively. And if they just stay with it a little bit longer, it'd be great. However, there is a case to be made to quit early, you know, like quit a hundred times. So until you find the thing that like, you're like, oh wait, I understand this thing. I really, I can see my future in this and I'm gonna love the grind. Eh, maybe those are the ones that you, you, you double bet on. So most people don't struggle with deep focus problems. Most people struggle with like more of an ADD kind of um, under focus rather than hyper focus. And most people don't play the long game they do quit early when it gets hard. And this is why mastery is so rare. This is why high performance um, is more available, but still rare.
Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.